This is Quarantine Conversations. Brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth and our host... Hello, I'm Daniel Gowerbach. Is Daniel. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, Ocean, or Atmospheric Scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on the podcast, we're talking to... Sarah J. Oliva. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the Quarantine Conversations. Uh, Now, today in our podcast series, uh, we like to meet people at various stages in their scientific studies. So would you consider yourself to be a student, a teacher, a hobbyist, a researcher? Where do you fall on that spectrum? I am technically now a researcher, a postdoctoral researcher, uh, no longer officially a student. So I don't get, you know, all those student discounts and perks anymore, but I'd like to think I'd always be a student, you know, in the sense of curiosity and eagerness to learn various things. Great. Yeah, that's the attitude that some of our best academics have, uh, constantly learning. Now, you're a really interesting scientist. You're a seismologist. What is a seismologist to you? So in the simplest sense, it means that as a seismologist, I study earthquakes. Um, when an earthquake occurs, it means there's some movement uh, happening beneath the surface of the earth, and that movement produces waves, vibrations. We feel that on the surface as vibrations. And then uh, we study these waves, which are recorded using seismometers. These are the instruments um, to figure out what's happening underneath our feet. I think that's a great uh, way of describing the field. Now, how did you get into this field? Um... Seismology isn't really one of the the professions that we grow up thinking about. (laughs) No, uh, interestingly enough, I, when I was younger, I did not consider seismology as a career either. I didn't really think of it, even though looking back in or like my old albums, apparently I, I did do a field trip, like a class field trip in like the earthquake agency uh, in the Philippines. I'm from the Philippines. Um, when I was in high school, but for some reason, that didn't really stick that that occurred um, <laughs> in the past. Like uh, my transition to seismology happened much, much later. Um, I had always been interested in science when I was a kid. I was more math inclined. I went to undergrad thinking I was going to do a math degree. Um, but in my last year in high school, I had a really good physics teacher that got me interested in physics Mm. and so after my first by then it was uh, we declare our major when we apply to um, university uh, which I know is different in some places but by then I had already declared myself to be a math major Uh, so it was not until my second year in university that I could switch to physics Uh, that wasn't too difficult math and physics are uh, related somewhat Um, But when that was all happening, uh, I should mention that uh, my dad is a geologist. So I did grow up with like geology words and terms and stories around me, though I didn't really think of it as a career. It was more of like a hobby, a fascinating, just a fascination. Um, And it wasn't until when I was looking at graduate school that I started reconsidering geology uh, as an option 
but it seemed like a little too far-fetched, uh, very too different to completely change lanes um, from physics to geology. And that was when I discovered that something called geophysics existed. Uh, so we use, uh, we apply physics to study various parts of the earth system. Um, in my case, I focus on the solid earth. That's where seismology uh, comes in. Yeah, so it was very interesting because when I was in undergrad, actually, I did my research in optics, uh, which as you may know, is the study of waves, but itty bitty teeny tiny waves, like nanometer scale light waves. Um, and then suddenly in graduate school, I find myself kind of getting drawn towards seismology, which is still the study of waves, but this time my waves are huge kilometer wavelength, uh, kilometer long wavelength kind of waves, seismic waves. But the wave theory, the wave phenomena, all these concepts of reflection, refraction, diffraction, it's all still the same. So it was very interesting how I never would have, I never planned it out, um, but that's how it turned out to be. And that's how I kind of ended up in uh, seismology. That was a very long story. <laughs> no, no, that, that's, that, yeah. You're at the center of a bunch of really unique um, scientific Venn diagrams. <laughs> oh yeah, it was like a lot of things that I could never have foreseen it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, but things happened, there are opportunities that I could take advantage of that allowed me to tra um, transition smoothly from physics to geophysics. Mm -hmm. uh, I found this program in Italy, in the International Center for Theoretical Physics that had an earth system physics program. So they taught like geophysics from a very physics, strongly physics background. Mm -hmm. And so that was very helpful in kind of establishing the fundamentals of geophysics before I went more into the computational and applied uh, parts of it. Sorry, did you just say you studied in Italy as well? I did. I spent a year there, so. So you've studied in the Philippines, you've studied in the US, in Italy, in Canada, <laughs> uh, yes. all around the world, right? Yes. Wow. Yes, I have. I've been all over the place. That's impressive. So it seems. I should also mention that I did. I've also done, in addition to like actually studying in those places slash different continents, right? Mm -hmm. I've also done field work in Africa and South America. So wow. now I'm only really lacking Antarctica and um, Australia. I haven't had the chance to go down there, but the rest of the continents, yes, check. <laughs> and uh, where do you say is your favorite place to do field work? I would have to say Galapagos. Mm. Um, that was a very interesting field experience. It was a lovely, lovely place. And of course, it was great to be able to visit the Galapagos with not without spending my own money, <laughs> getting paid to go there and do work. Uh, that was uh, the cherry on top. And I got to see that project from beginning till end. I, I got the opportunity to lead uh, the field work the last uh, trip. So it was like I felt myself grow a lot as a field person through the four times that I've been to the Galapagos which is quite a lot, considering most people are happy with once. What were you doing down there? Uh, we were studying a volcano uh, called the Sierra Negra. It's, it's a big caldera on, one of, on the largest island of the Galapagos. And in 2018, we knew that it was 
well, late 2017, uh, we knew that an eruption was coming. It was an impending eruption because seismicity earthquakes, there were more and more earthquakes every day. Mm. And satellite images could uh, measure that there's been also a lot of deformation, like uh, the caldera floor had been uplifting, mm. uh, which suggests that there's filling of the magma chamber beneath and that at any time it could pop. Mm. And so early 2018, we got together and um, put out seismometers there because we only, there's only, there were only very few permanent stations out there. And we really wanted to capture this opportunity, cap capture the before, during, and after uh, seismic activity of the of the volcano. And so it was a very quick turnaround kind of project of like, it's gonna pop, let's go, let's do this. And then and then yeah, we got to go back uh, when the eruption started, because we had to check on the seismometers and consider moving them if needed. Yeah, and then two years later, we took the, we took the seismometers out. Uh, it was very interesting for us to look at, kind of capture. This was the first well-instrumented eruption of that volcano that was captured. Uh, the previous eruption, there weren't really any local uh, seismometers to really study the earthquakes. Uh, so that was a unique opportunity for us. Quite expensive because Galapagos is not cheap, but <laughs> it was it was worth it. That's great. Yeah, I've heard the paperwork to get there is also, must be a bit of a nightmare too. <laughs> uh, yes and no, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, honestly. Oh. Maybe that was just me. Uh, maybe there were more admin work that didn't trickle down. I was a student back then. Um, maybe there were more that happened before that I didn't know, but it wasn't, it didn't seem that bad. We had, we had local collaborators that really helped us jump through the hoops and like write letters for us to present to the customs at the border. Um, so that went well. And then when we got to the Galapagos, you know, everything is, everything is conserved area, protected areas. Uh, but they understood what we were doing from, you know, the park rangers to just regular people. They all knew of the volcano that they were living with. <laughs> so it was very easy to communicate with people and talk about what we needed and they were all very eager to help. Great. Well, that's wonderful. Having local partners is always really important um, and just makes things so much easier uh, in the short run and the long run. Yes, definitely. And I always try to remember too that we're not just working with them for like our own research, that this is also for them. Mm -hmm. um, because they're the ones actually living with this hazard in their day-to-day -day lives. We, make, we made it a point that as soon as we had some results in one of the field visits that we did, we gave a public talk so that they'd know uh, what we've been up to and what we've found out from all the trips that we've done in the past that they've helped us with. Uh, that was fun too. Uh, we had to do it in Spanish, which was a, a, a new challenge, um, but... It, it was it was a very interesting and and I re I was really amazed at how much like just the general public knew and was interest and was interested to like learn. Mm -hmm. um, they had really good questions. We had really good feedback. Yeah, so I feel like if we give them a chance, a lot of people are willing to listen to science. That was great. That's great to hear. That's really encouraging too. Now, um, you've done this research all around the world. Um, have you made any discoveries that you care to share? Uh, yeah, uh, I'd like to think I've made some discoveries. 
they're probably like minor discoveries because I'm just beginning. But let me tell you about this one research that we've been doing. Uh, it was part of my PhD work. Uh, for most of my PhD work, I was looking into earthquakes in East Africa. Galapagos was like, like a sudden project that just came to be because of the impending eruption. But um, as was originally planned, my PhD focused on the East African Rift, uh, which is just a stretch along East Africa that is slowly, slowly pulling apart, very slowly geological timescales pulling apart. Um, and there's a paper that was actually just accepted in a journal uh, to be published in a journal just this month. And in that paper, we looked at an earthquake sequence in Malawi that occurred in 2014 through 2015. Uh, there was a main shock and then a lot of aftershocks. Uh, it was very interesting because I'm a seismologist and as a seismologist, I looked at it from the seismology point of view. And uh, the main shock origin, according to you know, seismology tools, was about 11 to 13 kilometers. But then we had these collaborators from a different institution using a different um, field. So they're geodesists. Geodesy is the study of the Earth's shape, orientation, gravity field. Um, and according to them, and according to their tools, the earthquake had to be shallower, like more three to six kilometers. That's a very big error bar and uncertainty if that if both happen to be correct. And so our collaborators uh, used satellite data. That's what the, that was the ge geodetic tool they were using. They used satellite data to measure the deformation, uh, surface deformation associated with the earthquake. And they uh, concluded that from the pattern of the deformation had to be shallower. We used earthquake waves. And from the time it takes for waves to travel and reach seismometers, we determined it had to be deeper. Now, at this point, we knew, kind of knew about this other group and we were working on our thing too. Um, we could have just published our findings you know, independently. That's something that people do. But we took on the challenge and decided we need to figure out what's going on. You know, First, let's check that we're, both our results are robust. And then we can go dig deeper and kind of try to reconcile our seemingly inconsistent conflicting results. Um, and so we did a bit more analysis um, and looked further into kind of the earthquake behavior during that time and also past earthquakes. And then we concluded that there must be a very highly fractured shallow crust that kind of allowed for seismic energy from very deep, not very, but 11 to 13 kilometers deep to propagate to the surface and kind of uh, redistribute in a way that mimicked a shallow energy source um, from the surface deformation point of view. Uh, so, so that was very interesting for us to kind of try to put the story together using these very different results, understanding the limitations, of course, of what seismology can tell us and what geodesy can tell us. So are you saying that you both or both your models um, had such a wildly different answer because the Earth's crust in um, uh, Eastern Malawi. Africa in, yeah. in Malawi is just so weird that the, uh, the seismic waves travel through it in an unconventional pattern? Uh, 
yes, I'd like to think, although I'd like to think this is not the only place that it has happened. We've only also found like other studies that hinted at something similar of this kind of partitioning of how strain is uh, distributed through the crust because of some characteristic of the, of the shallow crust. But yeah, this was something that as far as we know, wasn't um, identified in this area before. So we were pretty excited to like shed some light into this behavior. That's really cool. It's always a surprise when we find out that the planet is not the same um, throughout. It's not homogeneous mass. Well, <laughs> we, we like to assume spherical cows, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I think this study really highlighted the importance of kind of keeping in touch with other scientists having close collaborations with scientists working in the same area, but maybe from a different perspective, using different tools. Mm -hmm. um, multidisciplinary studies can be very valuable in, in instances when you want to really tell a good, coherent story about what is happening in a certain region. Yeah, and it, that just shows the power of collaboration. Um, oh, yeah. You uh, more than doubled the science <laughs> out of that single study. Now, what are you working on right now? Right now, I am working on offshore Western Canada, uh, so a lot closer to home at the moment. I'm looking at a transform fault. So a transform uh, motion is something kind of like sliding the same way that uh, San Andreas is sliding. And that's, that's a fault that goes offshore Haida Gwaii to southeastern Alaska. Okay. Um, that's the Queen Charlotte Fault. That's the focus of my study right now and the surrounding region. My first order of business is to figure out an improved velocity model for the region, kind of using all the available seismic data in the area that's been collected in the past 20 or so years. There's been a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and just using, you know, advanced computational tools to use all of that information and then get a good velocity model. A velocity model is, is a description of how fast waves would travel uh, th on, in the subsurface structure in the area, mm -hmm. um, because we need that to be able to accurately say more about the earthquakes, uh, because the earthquakes, the earthquake waves would travel at a certain speed through different kinds of rocks. So my first order of business is to figure out the velocities using a lot of earthquakes and then focus on a few key earthquakes, find what kind of movement produced these earthquakes, which we can do using, again, earthquake waves, and then figure out what is happening in the Queen Charlotte Fault. It's very interesting because, like I said, the Queen Charlotte Fault is known as a transform fault, similar to San Andreas. But a few years back, there was a large earthquake offshore Haida Gwaii, and that was a thrust earthquake. So that was an earthquake produced by two blocks pushing towards each other, uh, which is a very different movement from just sliding laterally against one another. Oh. And so we're trying to quantify how much of that pushing uh, seems to be directed more towards maybe early subduction or maybe not, uh, so we could better 
quantify and understand the hazards involved in, in that kind of area. Because when you have subduction zones, you're also more likely to have tsunamis. Those are generally tsunami, tsunamogenic earthquakes oh. because pushing the pushing movement displaces water mm-hmm. as opposed to something that's just sliding laterally that doesn't really displace water. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to hone in on that amount of convergence, plate convergence in the southern Haidi Gwai by looking at earthquakes in the area. Okay. That's really cool. I, I never really thought about um, the earthquake uh, being a different product uh, based on different movements of tectonic plates, whether the plates are moving side by side or crashing into each other. Um, but it sounds like you you specialize in the side by side type. Ah, funny enough, I actually specialize on the extending, on the extension kind of movement because that oh. was that's what East Africa is doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so now I'm catching up on the other kinds of mo- motion, which is the side-by-side kind of lateral sliding and the convergence kind of motion. Now in, the, in, this, in this research, that's what I'm focusing on. And I'm learning along the way too. Some things are new to me and it's been very exciting to learn more. Cascadia is a subduction zone. So more of the convergence kind of motion. And that's what we find offshore Vancouver Island. And that's also like the immediate threat to Vancouver. Uh, so that area is very well studied. But as we move north, there are fewer and fewer studies. And so that's kind of the niche, uh, the gap that we're trying to fill with this research that we're doing now. Oh, that makes total sense. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. Now, um, one thing that I've heard from a lot of people, a lot of our scientists is that uh, when they go out into the field, uh, they all love field work, uh, but they also tell me that the craziest stuff happens out in the field. Um, you've done field work all around the world, so I'm sure you've got a few crazy field stories. Uh, would you care to share any with, with me? Sure. I would say, though, I don't think I've had things that were too crazy that has happened to me. I've been pretty fortunate um, with pr- fairly smooth field work experiences, uh, things going how you know, as planned or just minor problems. But one of the most uh, memorable, good and bad in the good sense and a bad sense uh, experiences in, in the field that I've had was our hike to the summit of a volcano. Mm. So when we were in Africa, in Tanzania, in 2018, we were there to measure. I'm a seismologist, but I was helping this other other field we were there mostly f- to study carbon dioxide. So we were looking at carbon dioxide, we were measuring carbon dioxide flux up and down uh, the region that I studied uh, from the seismology point of view. So our theory was, it seemed that we know uh, carbon dioxide, a lot of gases come out of volcanoes, but it seems that this extensional kind of faults were also being used as conduits by gases for more um, diffuse kind of flux. And if you calculate or take into consideration, even though it's a smaller amount compared to you know, a volcano, even though it's a smaller amount of flux, if you integrate that over a longer, wider area, it could mean a lot. And so we were trying to constrain that by going up and down the, the rift, the East African rift, the Tanzania, Northern Tanzania part of it uh, to, measure carbon dioxide. And then we went 
to the summit of a volcano to also constrain uh, the flux at the top of a volcano. So that's Aldon, the name of the volcano is Aldonio Lengai. It's a very unique volcano because it has the coldest lava in the world. And by cold, I mean, you still don't want to touch it because it, it'll burn you. But as far as lavas go, it's one of the coldest. And it's so steep. That was the first volcano that I've ever climbed. Uh, we started the hike at midnight because of the cooler temperatures. You, did, you didn't want to be, you know, it was a volcano. There's not really trees for cover. So it was going to get really hot. And so... We start at midnight, we're scrambling up this volcano in the dark. Thankfully, we had local people helping us with some of our gear, carrying our gear, and they were just like running. And while we were like struggling with every step, they were so used to it, it was amazing. But that took me about eight hours of hiking at a steep angle to get to this top. I feel like the last like two hours of it, I just wanted to give up because it suddenly became a lot steeper. <laughs> but there was like, I, I, I had like six hours already of hiking uh, that, I was, that I already had done. And it was either go back down that six hours again or finish the two more hours. It was, it was a wonderful uh, view from the top, but the hike was so difficult. And so we got up to the top. It is very interesting lava because it comes out black, but within a few days, it, it hardens, it crystallizes and becomes white because it's a carbonate-rich rich kind of lava. So we know that carbonate, uh, in this case, it's actually sodium carbonate. Um, these are generally whiter rocks. And so it was very interesting to see um, it erupting. There was a tiny, tiny cone uh, in one of the craters and you could see it and hear it erupt, just flowing uh, and erupting. We made our measurements up there and then we stayed the night and then the next day we hiked down. That was a lot harder really? for me. The, it was scrambling. Mm -hmm. um, scrambling is not, never fun for your knees, go, especially going down. Actually, it took me longer to get down. Uh, it took me about nine hours and I was the last person down. At some point, I think our driver, yeah, it was our driver. Our driver scrambled up and met me like maybe an hour away from the bottom of the volcano because they were worried that something had happened because I wasn't there yet. Um, it was just really hard. And I, th I think that um, that experience in particular taught me of mind over matter of just, I didn't have a choice. And you just have to make one more step, even though your body's like too exhausted. And then again, we have all these locals who were just like running down. Um, so it was, it was a very interesting contrast to see the locals who are used to that kind of terrain versus me who is used to working behind a computer and just sitting in the office all day doing that climb. Yeah, that was a very interesting experience, very memorable. Besides that, you know, that trip was also great because we got to see giraffes and zebras and elephants like in the same because these are all um, a lot of the area is game parks um, in that part of uh, Tanzania. So that was very cool and very interesting too. But, oh, the, uh, the side benefits of 
yes, the side <laughs> benefits of that trip was just seeing all these animals uh, not in a cage, just doing their own thing. Um, we had some giraffes at some point, a herd of giraffes just kind of get close uh, while we were making measurements. And one of the, not in Oldonio Legay, but in another one of the uh, craters in the area, um, they were, we didn't want to scare them off, so we didn't really approach them. Um, but it was just interesting to see them. And there were so many of them. Uh, yeah. I have more just, I feel like my field experience, my stories are mostly just looking at animals. Like in Galapagos, uh, we, one of our uh, seismometers, we placed in an area that was a conserved area of the park that's actually close to the public. So people are not allowed to go there. Mm-hmm. I got to go there because I was there on official business and I was with a park ranger at all times. Um, but it was the area where they released uh, tortoises mm-hmm. back into the wild. So they take care of eggs until they hatch until a certain age. And then when they're like strong enough to fend for themselves and not be eaten by predators, uh, they, bring, they let them uh, back to the wild. And that was the area where they did that. Um, and so we got, I got to see several tortoises just on my hike to the seismometer, which that was again, one of a very long hike, but it gets better when you like spot a tortoise right there. <laughs> they're such gentle creatures. Yeah. That sounds great. But what an amazing side benefit, seeing one of the, the most protected ecological preserves in the world and really seeing behind the scenes um, something getting through like the back door scenes that the public don't get to see yeah that's some of the perks of working with earth related things I would say you get to have you get to go beyond where the public's allowed to study the volcano or um, just the earth in general now I want to go back to something you mentioned Um, you said that a lot of your work is actually done in front of the computer and you're not actually um, hiking around all the time. Uh, how much of your work is done behind um, this magic box of the computer uh, and how much is out in the field with giraffes on African volcanoes? Hmm. I want to say probably like 80 to 90% of my work is actually on the computer. Okay. Um, I just had happened to have a lot of uh, interesting opportunities to go out in the field. But most of our work is just getting all those squiggles. I like to call them squiggles, all those seismograms, the measurements of the vibrations of the earth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, using some waveform techniques to extract information out of them. And that could take you know, these are processes that could take their, their quick calculations or that I might need the computer cluster to finish. Um, but yeah, most most of my work, I would say, definitely is done in front of a computer. It is nice to go out in the field and have a, an appreciation for the effort that goes into being able to collect the data that I uh, look at on a daily basis. Sometimes when you don't go in the field, you forget and take for granted um, the physical work that goes into obtaining the data that we use. Um, And so it's nice to see 
it's also nice to see the actual context um, with your own eyes and think of it as I'm trying to, you know, analyze the data and figure out why is it no so noisy? Oh yeah, I remember it was near a road. You know, these are things that we're all taught to like write down and make notes of. When you put a seismometer, you make note of everything that's around it so that later on, if there's something funky with the data, you can track it back. But it's a lot easier to have that kind of personal experience and just go back in your own memory and be like, yeah, I remember that station. That was a station that was close to the road or that was a station that was nearby uh, a building that has a generator, something. Um, yeah. That's one unexpected um, uh, impact of COVID from what I've heard during the global shutdowns, apparently seismographers were getting uh, better readings um, and clear readings because there was so much reduced human activity uh, that the world was shaking less. <laughs> that is true. It is, it's very interesting. And it's something that, you know, we could talk about that in theory, you know, pre-pandemic and be like, you know, if everybody just stopped driving cars and stopped moving, mm -hmm. the earth would be a lot quieter. Um, but it, it's not something that we could really realistically test in practice until the pandemic happened and people were forced to stay at home and move less by move less I mean in cars mm -hmm. I don't think you dancing in your living room would affect the earth that much it's more of the trucks and the daily traffic uh, that the vibration of all these heavy cars and trucks on the roads uh, causes definitely some noise on the earth uh, we call this noise because these are still very small amplitude kind of motion compared to a lot of the earthquakes but it's still movement, uh, vibrations on the earth. It was very interesting when that came out and people could quantify just how quieter the earth had become. Speaking of which, um, COVID's impacted all of us. Has it impacted you and your work? Have you been able to work from home or? Yeah, I've been definitely impacted. I finished my actually finished my PhD and defended uh, remotely because of the pandemic. So I did all of that during uh, the past few months and transitioning to a new institution and a new job and doing new research with people that I've never actually met in person face to face. That was, that's been a little bit of a challenge um, trying to um, keep that kind of human touch, uh, that social aspect of the workplace, I think is a lot harder when there was no previous relationship um, to build on. Uh, so it's been a challenge in that sense, because for me, I really value kind of the impromptu discussions uh, at the corridor by the water cooler of just, hey, I'm having this trouble here. Have you encountered this kind of issue before? And then just getting an answer straight up without scheduling a Skype or a Zoom call and feeling like things need to be structured. Because once you schedule something, you feel like there needs to be some sort of structure to that meeting. Um, and then having Zoom fatigue when you've got too many meetings to get um, at, in the same day. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been difficult and I would pro I'm probably not alone in that. Work, fortunately, 
um, as I said, most of my work, of seismologists' work, is done in front of a computer. So that's something that's very portable. We're able to do it anywhere. I'm actually not in Vancouver right now. I'm in Edmonton. Oh. Um, and I could still continue work because I have access to the data that I need and I can I have access to computers at UBC and I could continue doing work as though I was in the lab, maybe with a little less speed because you have to go through the internet to get to the server, but um, it's definitely doable. And we're fortunate in that sense that we're not strongly affected by kind of the university lockdown and not being able to access a physical laboratory. Yeah, that's, great. that's, that's been the situation so far. Well, I can't wait to uh, welcome you into the department uh, physically. Um, <laughs> and I hope that that's soon. Uh, I think that we've got a great uh, workplace office culture um, and I hope that you'll enjoy it <laughs> as much as I have. Uh, it's certainly something that I've been missing and um, yeah, so I, I'm 100% there with you on, on missing out on being able to pop into people's offices and have a chat. That's what I've heard. I'm looking forward to being able to do that someday, soon, hopefully. Yeah. Now, there are things that we all love about our, our work and things that we don't enjoy quite so much. Um, can you tell me some of the things that are your favorite things with uh, what you do? Ooh, favorite things. Okay. Yeah, I, want to I think my favorite thing about working in in science or maybe maybe it's more applicable to other things too but I only know science uh, I love the Eureka moment I, I I don't know how to say it better but uh, the Eureka moments of when you you have a problem and you sit on it for a bit maybe for a few hours maybe for a few days and then you find out find a solution for it this could be something as small as you know, debugging or troubleshooting a code that's not working and then finally figuring out what was wrong with it. Or it could be something as big as like this paper that I mentioned where we had conflict, seemingly conflicting results and being trying to figure out in a big overview sense what could be happening to reconcile the different results. Mm -hmm. So those eureka moments are, I feel like what really keep me going when things are not working, <laughs> when I'm stuck because I'm hoping there's going to be a Eureka moment soon. And it's such a nice, just adrenaline and just satisfaction to have those little moments of figuring things out. So that's, problem solver. <laughs> yes, I do like, I, I like um, messing with code and messing with data for a bit and then finding something. Another part that I love about my work is actually the talking to the people part of it. Um, I love talking to the public, but to kids especially. I love doing outreach to kids, which I haven't done in a while now. But when things were a bit more face-to-face -face and personal, mm -hmm. I used to go into classrooms to talk to kids about earthquakes. And I, I really enjoy the process because kids are naturally curious. And sometimes as someone who's doing, well, who's doing research as a career, so it's my day-to-day -day grind, um, sometimes it's very easy to kind of forget that the forest exists and just focus on my little tree. Um, and the kids, talking to kids or the public in general, always forces me to kind of take a step back and see the forest. Um, and that really helps me 
continue. So it's also me kind of feeding off of kids and other people's curiosity uh, in what I do that reminds me, because sometimes I forget, a lot of times I forget uh, when I'm all into the nitty gritty, I forget how I got into I got into this kind of work in the first place. Um, so it's things like this, things, things also like this podcast that remind me to take a step back and reevaluate how I got here and really enjoy the process of, of the research, all the nitty gritty, unpleasant things included, and also the great, exciting moments too. I, I shouldn't be surprised that you love talking to kids and the public. Uh, that seems to really fit in with the whole, um, with, with your career path where you're working with people from different fields. Uh, totally makes sense that you would love to uh, talk to people at different age levels too and different scientific backgrounds um, to give you a, a more holistic perspective. Uh, that sounds completely on brand for you. <laughs> oh yeah. And I think it's also kind of, I feel responsible to like show people, especially that this field exists because I didn't know it existed when, when I was de um, deciding what to do when I was a kid and deciding what to do or to pursue as a career. I didn't know, even though I had the dad who was a geologist, I didn't really think he was more of a field geologist looking at rocks. Um, I didn't really think about seismologists and seismology. Uh, so it's just, getting the word out there that this is an option, like earth sciences is still on its way to become more of an established, I don't know, science option for people. A lot of people know, you know, your biochem physics and earth science is still kind of on its way to, I don't know, reach the same prestige as those three other sciences. Uh, but earth sciences is also situated in a very unique perspective because all those other sciences can be used and applied towards earth sciences. You know, we have geophysicists, geochemists, geobiologists. Um, so it's just getting the word out. I feel like we need to get the word out that earth sciences is a thing and we welcome everybody. Absolutely. I think we've got some of the, the coolest scientists in our field. Um, <laughs> they get to yeah do all sorts of fun things. <laughs> Very relevant too, of course. Absolutely. Now, um, that's some of the positive stuff with the field. Um, I, I think that the field's really open and really welcoming, but of course, my perspective isn't uh, what everyone else experiences. Um, is there anything that you felt has been unfair in your experience in earth sciences? Um, I don't know about unfair, but definitely some challenges, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is a lot of challenges, first of all, being an international student or person researcher that maybe uh, residents don't uh, appreciate or know enough about. Um, when I was doing my PhD, there was a time that I couldn't go home and see my parents just because of some visa problems. Um, I had like these several extra hoops to go through just to be able to do field work in another country because I need to apply for a visa and explain all these things that are maybe not uh, conventional because I'm, I'm a student, but I'm not there to study. I'm there to work, but I'm not paid. But, like it's not a work visa, not quite a study visa. So all this kind of 
complications that I have to jump through as what while on the other hand, maybe an American or Canadian can just buy a ticket and go go there the next day, you know? Mm -hmm. um, in my case, I had to like plan it out, go to the consulate, which is not in the same city. So travel to another city to go to like all these other hoops, the financial part of it that maybe the non um, international people don't know about. Um, and so, but then we also don't want to be, you know, penalized for having a, let's say weaker passport. Um, and so I just wish more people kind of appreciated or at least knew about these difficulties and that mentors, advisors, especially should know about this thing so they could help their students more and better navigate these kinds of things. Yeah, because when you're doing one of the most stressful, you know, things of your life, like finishing off your PhD, uh, the last thing you want is to not be able to go and see your parents or have extra hoops to jump through uh, just to do basic field work. Um, yeah. That's and not something I ever considered, but that totally makes sense. You mentioned the last bit of um, your, when you're finishing your PhD, you don't want to be thinking about all these other things. That's the very real um, situation that many P international PhD students go through. I knew where I was headed, so I uh, fortunately didn't have that big of a problem with that. But for a lot of international PhD students, if you don't have something lined up afterwards, you don't have to, a choice but to leave the country, um, kind of pick up everything that you've uh, accumulated, all of the friendships and everything uh, that you accumulated in the past five years or more, and just pack up and leave. And that's a big emotional um, kind of burden that's just sitting right there while you're trying to be productive and finish something. Uh, the problem be becomes a lot more complicated when there's you know family involved, kids involved. So definitely, I didn't have it as bad, but I know of people who struggle a lot. And maybe that's not just international students. I'm sure non-international uh, researchers have the same issue with just job volatility, but it's definitely enhanced for international people that rely on the job to get a visa. Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's just another barrier in what's already a difficult process. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, I know travel right now is completely uh, still shut down, um, but I do hope you get to you know, go home and see your parents uh, soon, <laughs> or at least I hope that things clear up enough. Um, my parents are here. Um, oh, so I'm, uh, my parents migrated to Canada, so I'm in an, okay situation in that sense, uh, which is also why I wasn't too worried about visas either because I can live here without a job. Uh, but again, this is not the case. I recognize this is not the case for everybody and I'm just speaking for all the others uh, that have those kinds of difficulties. Well, that's great because uh... That's a perspective that I don't have. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate hearing it uh, from you. So Sarah, that's all the questions that I had for today. Was there anything you want to say before I let you go? Um, anything else I want to say? 
Well, I just wanted to mention this thing that I, I'm always like championing for, uh, for how science transcends borders. Mm-hmm. As somebody who's traveled so much and has studied in many different countries too, I've seen and I've encountered and talked to a lot of people from different cultural backgrounds, different native languages, different religion, different ways of clothing, like different everything. Um, But I find it so refreshing and uh, really, really great that most, at least most scientists I know, we can kind of set aside all these barriers and just talk about the science. Um, And even more so uh, in the current uh, atmosphere that we're trying to more proactively recognize barriers and break them down. Um, and I really love that uh, in science in general. Um, that was one of the things when I first went to Italy, that was my first time being overseas uh, without my family alone in a new country in a, where I didn't speak the language. I didn't know anything about Italy besides pizza. <laughs> Um, and, but there I met a lot of people from very different places and you could just talk about science without referencing any other thing that we might not agree on. Uh, and I hope we're able to foster that kind of atmosphere, that kind of environment in a lot of our institutions more and more as we recognize more of those barriers and break them down systematically especially when they're systemic. So definitely happy to be in science and hoping to push more barriers away. Well, I mean, you seem to not only transcend uh, borders, you transcend uh, fields of science. Uh, Yeah, you transcend everything. (laughs) (laughs) We try to, right? Mm -hmm. We try to, and like individual scientists, we all try to make... uh, this atmosphere, the scientific environment more and more welcoming for everybody. Um, And those of us who are already here, we try to make it better for the next generation, just as the previous generation made it a lot better for us now. Like as a woman, I know definitely uh, that the situation has improved. It still has a ways to go um, in terms of improvement, but, um, you know, maternity leaves, all these things, weren't really well uh, respected and weren't the standard just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's gotten better. It's getting better. And we're going to make it even better. I love that mantra. Uh, making better, <laughs> you know, don't aim for the best, just that, you know, we'll, we'll take better. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise, I find people just, yeah, we spin around trying to get perfect. Um, well, change occurs with like little steps. Just absolutely. make it better, a little bit more better every day, every generation, and it's gonna get to a place where it's gonna be great. <laughs> well, Sarah, thanks for everything, and I wish you all the best in your uh, upcoming studies. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Absolutely, and uh, welcome to UBC. I I look forward to welcoming you again in person. <laughs> Oh, yes. I look forward to that, too. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Quarantine Conversations. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash quarantine conversations.